everybody listen to We're Not Wizards. Because we are the best. And we're not wizards. No matter what anybody says. Goodbye. another episode of We're Not Wizards. My name's Richard. I'll be your host for May because uh, the summer's approaching. You know, it's uh, it's kind of, do you remember what you did last summer? Do you remember what you did several summers ago? Do you remember what you did a couple of hundred years ago? Well, if you're struggling, um, I've maybe got a guest who can help us look into the past. Um, that person is uh, Holly Nielsen. And Holly Nielsen is a historian. That's an official title, by the way. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Holly's on to talk about the... They've done a lot of work in the history of board games. So we're going to have a little chat about that, as well as finding out a little bit about their good selves. And uh, hopefully you shall walk away from this podcast educated, as you would say. Oh no, so, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> it's not. It's kind of... It could be. It depends. Anyway, how are you doing? Are you well? <laughs> yeah, I'm all right. How are you? Um, yeah, it's been quite sunny. I've kind of picked the wrong day to be inside, I guess, <laughs> at night time yeah. and have to kind of keep the windows closed so in the passing traffic doesn't kind of affect any of the kind of the recording things. So that's about, that's not a good thing. You know, that's not a good thing. <laughs> what about yourself? How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I mean, I spend most of my time indoors reading <laughs> books or in a library, so I spend most of my time looking out into the weather and being like, oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> probably should be outside at some point, but nah. <laughs> um, I, w- I mean, I've obviously floated the idea that you're some, you're, you know, you're you're a board game historian. You're probably saying that has set the bar far too high. Um, I have <laughs> been involved in it, but you know. You're not kind of expecting some kind of Indiana Jones kind of archaeologist kind of historian type thing. You're not. You don't have a bullwhip, I'm guessing, or a fedora. Uh, no, no, that happens after the PhD. That's yeah. You get, you know, you get your degree, and then you get the hat and the whip, and it's all very official. You get sent to like Chile or Peru to get some kind of golden meeple or something. Is that kind of yeah. what? Is that kind of what happens? Yeah. Something like that. I mean, I kind of, I joke a bit about, I was like, well, you know, the amount of time I've spent looking at old board games and yeah. I have yet to come across like a Jumanji situation. Yeah. And then my friends will point out, it's like, well, you spend most of your time looking at like really problematic <laughs> games from like the 19th century. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think I want to be like drawn into that kind of horrible no. imperial Victorian world. But, you know, maybe no. one day, one day. No. <laughs> um, are you quite a keen kind of board gamer? yourself i mean do you manage to get obviously doing what you do i mean um it must take up an awful lot of time i guess after kind of like a hard day where you've been looking through kind of stuff you're kind of like the last thing you want to do is actually to look at another board game but are you quite a regular kind of player of games yourself yeah so uh me and the people i live with in my flat we're quite into playing board games uh, particularly my brother who's one of the people i live with he's mm-hmm. uh he got well into board games i think he was really into warhammer and so got into kind of tabletop stuff through that mm-hmm. and through him he's kind of introduced me to a bunch of games that we now play pretty regularly all right it's now a thing where uh you know, if people are coming around, we usually have like a board game evening at our house and stuff. But then I usually get the thing where people are like, oh, but you have a, you know, you have a master's degree in board games or are oh, you doing a PhD in board games? Are you going to be really good at this? And I'm like, no, no. Like as much as, as, much like as I wish, like about... I was just right, you know, starting a PhD and oh, yeah. <laughs> I would have thought they would have done some kind of practical kind of thing on it that you would have had to kind of like the practical exam would have been you would have had to have been good at board games in order to continue doing kind of like the PhD did you not have to kind of do that then no yeah just 
just write hundreds of words on monopoly strategy and that's pretty much you know that's pretty much it really i can imagine that that could be actually punishment for some people <laughs> having to sit down and spend like you know i mean all the good people have done well in their phd stuff so far you can go and sit in that room and you can write about all the nice games and you over there you can write about um tactics for frustration and also <laughs> and also for Ludo and you can also, you know, Twister as well. Oh not Twister kind of thing and, and so on and so so forth. Um do you remember what well, I mean, what's your history been like with kinda of like board games? I mean do you, what was the kind of the first games that you remember kinda of playing? So as a family we I remember board games being a thing I always wanted to play. Hmm. Um but rarely were my parents kind of like not working late hours or, you know, you know, not about enough to play with me. So it's always a thing of, I always wanted to play. Um, mm. and rarely when we got the occasion to, I was always like, yeah, but, uh, but actually, uh, we didn't play that much. I remember kind of having a, uh, Disney trivial pursuit that I used to make people play because I knew it was the only way I'd ever win a game of trivial pursuits. Um, what were the questions? Kind of does that mean oh. okay? Does that mean that your Disney your Disney kind of trivia is right up there? That potentially, if your paths had gone another way, you might have been doing a PhD in Disneyology or something like that instead. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah. So the path that I chose not to take, you know, I looked at the board game and I looked at the Disney aspect, and I was like, well, there's only one of these I can choose. Um, but yeah, so, and I just remember playing a lot of those kind of really plasticky, physical, kind of like mouse trap yeah. and things like that, and which I'd often just, you know, kind of play by myself, you know, set them up and mm. just fiddle about with them, but I don't really count. It wasn't really playing like you'd play a kind of normal board game. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was it really. And then I didn't actually, you know, a lot of people kind of think like, oh, well, if you're kind of studying these things, you mm. must have been well into them as a kid. And not really. It was something I always wanted to do, but never really did. So maybe this is my way of making up for it now by just, you know, filling all my spare time looking at these things. But yeah. You always had an interest in kind of like history. Because I guess for, okay, so people who aren't aware of kind of a, get a bit of your background, you're, you're not just a historian, you're a writer. And you have done quite a lot of writing um, in the kind of the video game kind of field mm. so were video games kind of like another area that you kind of found yourself kind of getting interested in as well kind of, did the two kind of come hand in hand or was it kind of like video games first before it was kind of like board games so i'd say it was probably video games first because i used to play video games uh quite a bit as a kid mm. um and so and kind of got into games journalism when i was doing my undergraduate degree and yeah, and just wrote about video games and kind of kind of came across board games as a topic almost by accident, really, because my undergraduate and what I did my undergraduate dissertation on were absolutely nothing to do with board games. I didn't even do modern history. Right. I did uh, early modern history and I wrote my dissertation on the, I'm trying to remember it now. It was the use of, it was uh, Robert Boyle and Isaac Newton and their alchemical and magical research. Oh, right. Okay. So my kind of special topic was I was interested in ritual mm. and kind of spheres of ritual and things like that. And then I remember going into uh, the Black Cultural Archives in Brixton for a totally different reason. Mm. Um, I was there with a bunch of people from my course. And one of the things that was brought out uh, was a, uh, it was a board game made by a Black and Asian women's group in the 1970s, I think, in East London. Right. And it was a homemade snakes and ladders board. Um, but the point of the game was that you always lost because you were playing as a Black woman in society at wow. that time. And it was this kind of dark humor, kind of, yeah. I, and I just thought it was just so powerful and so interesting. And it was also at a time when in video games, kind of Gamergate was happening and there was all these ideas of games being political and being progressive yeah. and a lot of fight. And as, as a historian and as, well, anybody who kind of looks at the humanities know, you know, that everything is political in its own way. And it was kind of really infuriating seeing this. And I kind of, I like this idea of kind of taking games into this longer narrative that goes 
because I think video games are often kind of treated in this kind of little digital bubble. Yeah. And actually, there's this much longer history of kind of rule-based uh, structured play that goes into video, uh, goes into sorry, into into board games. And so, yeah, just kind of those kind of two things. And then also looking at ritual, which is a lot of the kind of uh, theory around ritual is very similar to theories around play. So they're all kind of like merged together. And then I started doing a bit of reading and then I realized like, oh my God, there's like barely anything, you know, there's very little written on uh, board games, particularly like social and cultural history. And that very rarely happens in history. You know, usually you think of a topic mm. and then you'll go and there'll be this like, you know, hundreds of books written about it. And so, yeah, it was a big shock to see that actually there was, there wasn't much there, which is, uh, which is good, but also incredibly intimidating because suddenly you have to, you don't have, you know, professor so and so, you can follow their thesis. You have to suddenly think on your feet a bit more, yeah. which is, I think, a challenge that I've enjoyed quite a bit. Is it maybe because, say, with board games, I mean, anyone can effectively make up a board game. I mean, I speak to people all the time running kind of like Kickstarter campaigns from their own board game and they have taken essentially kind of little tokens, chitties, kind of like pieces of paper, stuff like that in order to create their own kind of game. Do you reckon that because of that maybe that the board games aren't, the smaller kind of maybe less well-known games aren't as well documented or there wasn't seen as a need to document it, you know, because of potentially it was just this form of entertainment it was potentially hey look what i've invented and maybe people didn't think at the time oh you better box that up and write that down because there'll be a historian in the future who's wanting to write kind of all all about it yeah i think there's definitely an issue with um kind of what gets put in an archive Mm. and what doesn't and so uh there's a couple of, so Museum of Childhood in London has yeah. quite a big uh, board game uh, collection, but it's actually, uh, when we kind of get these old board games now, it's mainly through donations of private collectors because right. museums for a long time were like, well, it's, you know, it's not worth keeping these things. You know, they're just these items of play, mm-hmm. they're, you know, leisure, they're not, you know, important, you know, quote unquote important things. And, um, and yeah, so you get kind of these uh, private collectors who, you know, over the decades or, you know, some of them going to century have like collated these huge, you know, this huge amount of, 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 of uh, board games. And so, and they're now kind of slowly being kind of donated to these museums and archives. And so are then available to historians and to researchers. And so I think, yeah, there's, and so there's kind of, I think the Bod- the Bodleian has this huge collection now, which yeah. we got um, over the last few years. And so like all of a sudden there's this, this huge amount of material Um and but it's still a bit kind of disparate it's still a bit kind of all over the place like when i mm. the archives i use are like a little bit of everything other than the kind of bodleian and the museum of childhood there's you know there's the imperial war museum has some yeah you know, first world war games and then the museum of london has some suffragette games and they're kind of dotted all over the place which makes it a bit a bit more challenging because you don't really have this central hub yeah um but yeah but it's hopefully with kind of more readily available archives more people will become interested in them and but yeah it's a it's a difficult thing because um i think a lot of history departments especially uh can still be a little bit kind of ironically stuck in the past <laughs> um with uh how they can't approach history you went there. and i can't believe yeah, you went there yeah i'm, I'm so sorry no. <laughs> um but yeah so uh so yeah, it's a diff- it's it's a difficult thing, but I think more and more there's becoming a bit more awareness of it, and it's taken a little bit more seriously. And there's some brilliant historians who have like done very good work on it. So it's kind of gradually building up into this bigger thing, but it's exciting to see it happen. Yeah, I've seen the same thing recently with the discussion over the kind of the archiving and the collection of kind of like video games mm. and the kind of the basically that video games have a shelf life to the point where they might not necessarily work anymore and mm. that due to kind of like copyright issues and availability, you just can't get hold of any yeah. video games unless you're kind of getting them kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, kind of mm. illegally off of kind of like ROM kind of places, which is kind of, it's almost like, oh, well, we're talking about documenting history, but, you know, 1980s when a lot of video games started off you know that's a good you know that's like that's a good while ago now and and you know we're losing a lot of stuff because of ip kind of yeah. protection and stuff like that which is kind of like a 
kind of like a strange thing. Um, mm. How old are board games? I mean, that is the biggest <laughs> question. But, you know, people kind of go, I mean, we talked kind of a little bit in the green room quickly to say, well, you know, Catan is what, you know, Monopoly is what people kind of think about. But, you know, do they go back as far as people say? Are there, are, you know, are there people in Pompeii that were playing little board games? Was it, does it even go further back? You know, did Ugg pick up a stone as a Cro-Magnon man and put it right in front of Tharg's stone and went, I win, and then hit him over the head with his club? I mean, is that kind of as far back as we went? I mean, I can't guarantee uh, about Ugg playing. Uh, that's a... Uh, <laughs> I'm afraid I can't verify that, but there are ancient board games. There's like the game of Ur, which was played in Mesopotamia, mm -hmm. and there's Egyptian board games, and so they've been around for thousands of years. Um, if you think a board game is actually, you know, it can be if you kind of broaden your idea of what a what a board game is and what a board can be, mm -hmm. just kind of drawing in the dirt can be a board game. Uh, you know, carving into stone and things like that um, happens quite a bit. I'm afraid I'm not as sharp on ancient board games because uh, my own my own topic is Britain, and Britain was uh, fairly a bit of a latecomer to the board game scene, as far as we can tell. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But no, they've they've been around for thousands of years, um, and but they're but they're very difficult sources to analyze, really, because especially with these ancient board games, you know, you don't have the rules written out a lot no. of the time you just have the board yeah. you have these symbols and play is this really really tricky thing to analyze um you know there's a thing about board games where some uh, historians will call them mute sources in that if you look at the board game it doesn't tell you anything really about the actual play that took place it doesn't tell you who played it why yeah. they played it um, you know, how they played it necessarily, because people like to, you know, change and push against rules and things like that. Um, so it all gets very complicated, which is why um, for my own research, when I did my uh, my master's, my MPhil, I focused, I did a kind of social and cultural history, but I did a lot of kind of analyzing the board games uh, from the perspective of understanding the developers and the people who published them. And then for my PhD, I'm hoping to actually try and how do we talk about players and how do we use board games to understand players mm -hmm. and and you know the the role they played in people's lives which is a it's a tricky thing and when i think to um you know i mean my topic i only go back to the kind of 19th century late 18th century sometimes and even then i'm kind of you know scratching my head and figuring out oh, well how do i talk about the people who played them and then i think of these you know archaeologists <laughs> who are studying the game of air and these you know thousands of, and i'm like okay right i have it pretty easy in comparison i shouldn't complain you gotta, okay. but i mean what kind of games you know if you were you know if i was walking into kind of like no because i'm trying to, i'm actually trying to swagger but i shouldn't do that if i was walking in quite <laughs> prim and proper you know and we'd we'd had a lovely we'd had a lovely dinner we'd had some you know some cigars and some brandy and then somebody said mm. you know shall we play a board game what kind of board games were you looking at kind of like you know late 1800s early 1900s what could i expect to play and first and, and i guess secondly were they any good or were they just rubbish <laughs> um i mean it's so, um, so a lot of the board games i look at uh, are games designed for children. Right. Uh, so I spend a lot of, far, I've looked at more Ludo and Snakes and Ladders boards than anybody should ever look at in their life. Uh, I've seen so many. Um, so those games, uh, as we know, they're like entirely chance based games. Yeah. Uh, so they're not, you know, they're not that interesting by our, you know, by, by our standards, but you know, they're still popular today. People still play them, oh, yeah. especially younger children. Yeah. Um, but then I guess, you know, you have chess and things like that, which are huge in the kind of 19th century. You get the first chess celebrities really? appearing really? and uh, it was treated like a proper sport. It was, um, you know, kind of sport columns and newspapers had a chess section. It was taken very seriously and it was a uh, and you get, yeah, you get these celebrities popping up and it's a, it's a really interesting. The whole culture around chess is really fascinating. Um, so that's a big one. And then, yeah, and then I guess... You get things like whist and not necessarily board games, but whist and mahjong mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, but yeah, so there's there's a real plethora of games out there, and yeah, trying to and also just who you were. I think had a real impact on which 
what games you played and the situations yeah. you played them in. Um, so a lot of, uh, so if the kind of middle class was defining itself in the late, uh, kind of 18th, uh, in the night and mainly in the 19th century, this kind of new British middle class was kind of, you know, saying, oh no, we're, a, we're, we're different from the upper class and we're different mm-hmm. from the lower class. We're this, you know, you know, we're all of this. And what I think one of the ways they did that was by defining, um, their play as being different. So they made a big deal of not being gamblers. You know, the middle class were kind of, they, one of the things that defined them was, uh, was, uh, religious sensibilities. And so play had to be different from gambling. So you get these amazing, um, it's on at the, there's an exhibition on at the British Museum at the moment, uh-huh. uh, which is all about playing with money. So I'd highly recommend that. Yeah. Okay. And in that they have these, uh, uh, I think they're whist tokens and on them, there's like these kind of little kind of sayings be like, Oh, you know, we don't gamble and things like that. And oh, play virtuously and, you know, like really define themselves as, you know, we're playing this game, but no, it's not gambling. Uh, it's all about improvement and it's all about all these things. And it's just a way of defining themselves as being different and uh, a different way of playing. Was there an influence? Was there an influence in board games made up board games like to do with kind of like religious virtue and stuff like that? I mean, did you see that, and did you also see maybe influences from other countries as you know immigration increased into the UK? Did you kind of notice that in the type of? I mean, you mentioned the the kind of the snakes and ladders board game. was there kind of similar kind of board games of that ilk that had kind of um, that were almost kind of influenced from external forces kind of outside the UK? So, uh, so there's a big connection between Empire and the British Empire and board games. Right. So both Snakes and Ladders and Ludo, uh, which were probably two of the most popular board games around kind of turn of the century, Edwardian, mm. early twentieth century. Um, both of those are. So Snakes and Ladders originally comes from Gyanshapur. I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, but it was, a it's a, it's a game from Asia, kind of India, Tibetan, all that kind of region. And mm-hmm. it was a spiritual game. It was a game, uh, not necessarily played in the same way that we would think of it. It's a game about kind of, um, uh, reincarnation and gaining higher spiritual levels and things like that. So the fate in, in Snakes and Ladders was all about this kind of, karmic uh cycle um and then it kind of got brought over to britain with uh returning colonial families and with people who were stationed in india and at first of all it was brought over this kind of anthropological curiosity uh there's a lot of uh things to do with that when people are writing about it but then it gets rebranded in the at the end of the 19th century as this uh game for kids as a way for kids to learn in fact, I think actually the first one is, it was produced, it was a round board and it was produced oh, right. by FH Ayers. And I don't actually know, I can't remember the top of my head, but I don't think that one necessarily had the kind of moral education element uh-huh. of it. But, um, but yeah, but definitely it became this game of kind of teaching morals to children and, but it has this really weird kind of history really because it's about kind of, yeah, so it kind of, in some ways at this time you get a lot of these kind of like orientalist motifs in these games you know you have kind of snake charmers and all these kind of tropes that were used and were used in advertising and people would have recognized it was a way of kind of defining the other and making it exotic and you know this kind of nondescript slightly racist well not slightly but racist kind of portrayals of uh of, of 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 india and places like that and so and snakes and ladders it loses that gradually and uh, because it kind of gets known as this kind of British game. And it's a British game about, yeah. you know, educating children. And Ludo has a much sharper kind of cutoff because Ludo's from Pachisi, which yeah. is an Indian game. Yeah. And it gets, and then the kind of who branded Ludo first is a very complicated. There's like a whole bunch of things going on, but basically it comes over someone, you know, it all gets rebranded as Ludo. It becomes a lot simpler to the original game Pachisi. And by kind of the turn of the century, every board game publisher has like a copy of Ludo. And it gets to the point where there's kind of all these advertisements saying, oh, this is the kind of, you know, the grand, great old British game of Ludo. And also we have (laughs) the new exotic game of Pachisi, even though Pachisi is much older than Ludo. But it just lost the, it it kind of, you know, this kind of a... uh, Asian game design had just been totally co-opted mm. by uh, Britain and, you know, and just 
all of its kind of original connections just lost at that point. It was just by the time it was when it was rebranded as Ludo, it just lost the Pachisi connection totally. Yeah, I mean, that would have been down to we can't have a popular board game being invented outside the UK. I mean, that would have been, you know, mm. patriotism and stuff like that kind of coming it's, in. Yeah, it's it's such a weird thing because then you also get games like Mahjong, which became huge in the 1920s. Like there was this big kind of Mahjong craze. Yeah. And uh, a part of that was it was this idea of kind of having this authentic play. So when people were talking about it, they'd be like, oh, well, I... Uh, you know, I learned this from a from from someone in Hong Kong, and there's this there's this idea of kind of a it being an authentic kind of you know it's this kind of exoticization of of play and these things. But I think there's also, but when it becomes connected to children and childhood, it becomes a little bit more complicated. Uh-huh. And so, but yeah, there's a lot going on. That's why board games are such a brilliant source because they they show this tension between uh, kind of. They're very like domestic items at this time. Games like Ludo and Six and Ladders, they show this tension between domesticity and empire mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. teaching children and all these all these complicated things floating around. You mentioned earlier on about well, you mentioned talked about kind of colonialism and it's kind of mm-hmm. like strong themes. I mean, in terms of in terms of mechanics, I mean we talk about me- you know, mechanics all the time. And mechanics just seem to be becoming kind of more complex. Um, there's still the elegance there, but you still get the complexity of a game where you've got lots of kind of many moving parts. I mean, is there examples of games with that level of kind of complexity, kind of looking back on the stuff that you've looked at? Yeah, so there's uh, there are some games which are very complex and they in my own research the ones that i've come across uh, they've tended to be military strategy games um yeah so kind of games you know about controlling armies and mm-hmm. you know the kind of usual stuff that we see now really um and they can get quite complicated uh there was often kind of they would have two sets of rules they'd have like the simple rules and then they'd have the kind of mm-hmm. you know hardcore rules which i remember once there was a game that I look at as a first world war strategy game. And I was kind of ch- sat down and the map is just, 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 the playing board is a map and it's really, it's just incredibly intimidating. <laughs> and I was trying to read the rules and I was just like, oh God, <laughs> this is, why can't it just be snakes and ladders again? I know where I stand <laughs> with snakes and ladders. <laughs> was, did you get kind of like the themes of colonialism in some of these games there? Was it all very kind of, you're taking over the, you know, this, beautiful land and, and making it British and stuff like that was there kind of like hints of that did it get kind of like because you mentioned this, that some things were could be problematic to say the mm. least yeah so vast majority of games I look at are problematic in some way or enough as is the kind of that's what happens when you look at old things generally um so you get a lot of some some of the first kind of um, board games designed for children and for mm-hmm. education um, were created in the late 18th century. And right. the first ones were geographical games. So they were games about teaching geography and kind mm-hmm. of traveling the globe and tra- basically, you know, map makers or publishers that would have these maps. You could like throw on a couple of like numbers, you know, a general route and it, it was a board game and you could probably sell it for a little bit more. And um and so a few publishers did this and you get a lot of geographical games, a lot of kind of games about teaching geography. And then you start to get a lot of games about uh, traveling, you know, it's called like traveling the colonies or, you know, the great game of, you know, empire, you know, all these things which are about teaching children about the empire and the places within the empire. Yeah. And yes, it's, I, I've just written a chapter on them. So they're all very fresh in my head. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the time, one of the things I would argue is that they're, so they're kind of teaching, well, on the surface, they're teaching, they're meant to be teaching kids about, you know, places like India mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but actually, I think a lot of what they're actually doing is trying to instill an idea of a British identity in kids by pointing out the other. So kind of, it's ostensibly about traveling India, but what it's really doing is showing a you know trying to show a british identity by showing everything that a british identity isn't which is ah, very, right okay which is a lot of what's going on in literature at this time as well 
Um, so uh-huh. there's quite a few games like that where it's uh, you have these kind of really thick rule books and they'll have all these descriptions of places and peoples and oh, it gets incredibly problematic. <laughs> it gets incredibly, uh, as you might imagine, just very, very racist, uh, very kind of yeah. And but yeah, but it's it's there and it's a, it's a it's a really big part of the history. Is there a part? I mean, were they moving into kind of like different? themes as well did you get i mean obviously and i mean nowadays i've I mean i've seen games based on kind of like everything from um you know butterflies to kind of having a mariachi band to kind of like you know collecting ducks to you know fighting other squirrels for nuts and stuff like that so there was was there kind of like a wide range of um, the, those types of games probably exist as well. You know, you can just pick a theme nowadays, and there's no doubt somebody's made a game about them. But mm. was there that kind of wide range of themes kind of going back, or is that something that's kind of relatively new as people look for a commercial difference to sell their particular game? Um, there was a f- there's quite a few different themes, but I mean, probably not in the same way as there is now with all these oh. kind of things like that there's kind of a lot of these games they 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 would refer to kind of um stuff that was going on in society as the time at the time to try and sell board games so you'd get uh, games about like the suffragettes or Mm -hmm. games about you know political things that were happening and and social movements and things like that to try and you know cash in on this kind of a kind of quick kind of you know turnaround thing um so you get kind of games about that uh but and then I guess you do get you get games about uh, kind of Peter Rabbit, or you get kind of uh, fantasy games or fairy tale games, um, but probably less abstract than a lot of games we have now. Yeah, was it more a case of taking a kind of a classic mechanic and then kind of putting the kind of the soup du jour over the top of it and saying, right there you go, there's your suffragette movement, or you know, yeah. Here you yeah, go, you know. Here definitely. you that you know. Here's here here's another topic that we cover. Here's here's another one. Here here. Oh, get these out, get these out, because these will be selling like kind of like hotcakes today. Kind yeah. of yeah. So there's a lot of that. Like most of the games I look at are race games, like really simple. Mm-hmm. You know, you have like a board and you roll a dice or you spin a top or whichever you move, and then there's like hindrances and there's benefits to certain spaces. Like super simple, and often they would just kind of um you know, a theme was just thrown on top of, top of it, you know, mechanics not changing really to reflect the theme and the theme was just kind of put on top. Um, so yeah, so it was a way of kind of getting a quick turnover and also it was a way of you didn't have to explain your game because everyone looking at it would know how to play it and so it wouldn't be this big intimidating thing that would need a big rule book. It could just, you know, everyone would know how to approach it. <laughs> um, Is there, in terms of kind of like, um the modern kind of stuff, is that something that you would look at as kind of time goes on? Would you kind of drift into kind of like board games and kind of like round about the time of like Second World War and, and onwards? Have you kind of jumped into that area at all? So for my uh, MPhil research, I my dates were kind of circa 1880 to 1930. Yeah. But for my PhD, at least at the moment, I'm sure it'll change okay. vastly as they always do. It's... um. My, the dates I'm looking around are around 1860 to 1960. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, so moving a little bit further, making it a little bit more modern because I'm, well, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but one of the main ones is I'm really interested in players themselves and I want to do some oral history kind of interviews. I want to talk to people right. who played games as kids. And so moving your period a bit further in, you know, I'm more likely to find people who played games in the 40s, 50s, early 60s than I am in the 1880s. So (laughs) makes it a little bit easier. Picking picking this time period because there's less dead people, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. (laughs) What kind of, I mean, have you already started to kind of look around at kind of like the games that that were kind of available at that time. I mean, is this where you start to slightly head towards the kind of the more commercial stuff once you hit into kind of like the 60s kind of thing? Or have you kind of not looked that far yet? Games get kind of super commercial, like quite early on. So kind of when printing becomes easier and cheaper... Mm -hmm. Uh, kind of in the late ni- uh, late eight- uh, 19th century, sorry, uh, 
then you know there's this kind of this there's quite there's loads of games um so they kind of it's it's and also after the first world war there's this big boom because uh germany was the leader before that in mm. toys and games and then after the first world war uh, a lot of games companies uh, got a big boost because it was uh, earmarked by britain as a, as a as an area where britain could thrive in the absence of uh, german competition so they got a lot of investment through that yeah. and so uh and so yeah and america is makes a lot of board games at this time and it becomes this big commercial it's a it's a you know it's big business essentially you know there's a lot of money to be made Mm -hmm. in board games at this time um so it's kind of a gradual thing um really and but yeah but i'm interested to see as i've you know i'm very new to the 50s and 60s it's a you know i've it's only something i've just started looking at so i'm interested to see what happens there so i might yeah, give me another couple of years and I'll give you a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> is there like a dark ages of board gaming where there's just like nothing, like, you know, in the subject, it's just like there's nothing at all to look at. The board game coverage is kind of like gone and we don't know what's kind of going on. Is there any particular areas that you found quite difficult to kind of track down the more kind of unusual uh, games of the day? So there's definitely archival gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, where there probably was stuff going on, but getting access to that stuff is incredibly difficult. I don't know why, but I found the kind of eighteen, kind of eighteen seventy to eighteen eighty, quite difficult. I don't know why it is. I it's probably just the archives I've been looking at. Um, that's just a personal thing. I'm not saying that there was this kind of great kind of lack of board games at that time, but just personally, kind of. Uh, noticing where the kind of peaks are in my own, uh, the ones I've looked at. Um, but I think basic, I think it's difficult, especially if you're looking at kind of early modern, which is kind of, kind of, you know, 18th century going mm-hmm. back to 15th, kind of that kind of time. Uh, it gets a bit difficult because then, you know, generally the older things are, there's less around of it, yeah. particularly things like games where, they're these quite disposable things sometimes or they're seen as not worth keeping and so it becomes very difficult to look then but you do still get you get these amazing kind of like tables which were carved with games and paintings and things like that that reference them but yeah but there's definitely times where I'll be looking at my sources and I'm like okay I've only got one or two games for 1880 but I've got you know 150 for 1900 so I need to kind of try and pad that out a bit (laughs) What about kind of modern times? Because we seem to be in an age where there's like thousands of games kind of getting released. Do you think that we should be making conscious steps to try and catalogue as many games? I mean, Board Game Geek obviously does a good job of Mm. cataloguing a lot of games, but um, it depends if the person who maybe creates it or somebody actually gets, you know, actually goes ahead and makes the effort to kind of catalogue that game as well um, do you think that maybe we need to be looking at something like that I mean is there things that people should maybe be doing if they want to keep a good decent catalogue of the kind of the board gaming hobby as it kind of rolls out just now mm. I think yeah there's I mean there are probably museums and archives that are, have initiatives I think there's the Strong Museum in America yeah uh, I yeah. think that catalogs a lot of stuff um but yeah obviously as a historian I'm always like yeah keep it all you know <laughs> sure why not obviously that's a very difficult thing to do and ask of people uh the practicalities the practicalities of that are quite difficult um but I think a really important thing for me as well is that we don't just make an effort to keep the board games themselves although that's obviously a really important thing yeah but I ideas of kind of kind of documenting the actual play itself kind of writing about play writing about experiences you know having these uh moments recorded in some way having people's reactions to games recorded because that's a really difficult thing to capture unless there's a kind of a real effort about it 
So that's one thing that I think that's really, and also a thing that I think is really important that a lot of museums and archives don't do is um, capturing board games that have been drawn on, board games that have been kind of written on and all mm. of that. For me, that is the most exciting thing I can find in an archive is an right. old board game where people have drawn on it because that's that's an example of a kind of player interaction that if they hadn't have done that, like physically marked the board, I could never have got access to otherwise. Um, and so, but because a lot of archives and museums, their uh, their priority is to get really, you know, pristine yeah, yeah. examples of games that these kind of games are often lost. They're often thrown away or they're kind of left in people's attics and things like that. And actually that's incredibly valuable and that's, yeah, that's really important. Um how we go about actually collecting those things, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe um, I think there's, there's, there has to be a way, even if it's not the physical things, but there's some kind of archive where if you could take pictures or record memories, things like that, um, then yes, that would that would make it a lot easier for future historians. Yeah, because I think at the moment we kind of, the board game kind of media seem it concentrates on kind of like it does concentrate on previews it concentrates on like reviews as well there are playthroughs but you get very kind of yeah you're right you get kind of very few kind of here here we're let's let's just see how this unrolls you know we've got it on the table mm. let's play it let's see how people react it's a very i guess because it comes down to people kind of giving measured opinions on how they feel about games sometimes and sometimes they go right into the experience and other times they're just saying well here's the rules and this is kind of what I thought about it and I guess we're not thinking about it at the time to say Mm. how is somebody in 50 years going to be looking back on this and you know try to find out more about the game is why was Catan so popular you know why did everybody think Magic the Gathering was fantastic kind of thing (laughs) and it's like well if you look at the cards you can see you know from a skill point of view and from building decks you know how skillful you must have been but I guess are you going to see actual here's an actual tournament kind of unrolling and us filming the players and how their reactions are and the kind of the stress they're going through or how jubilant they are or Mm. you know the general feel of the room and stuff like that which is I think is maybe needing captured more I don't know yeah stuff like that is is just yeah it's it's so important and I think there's also an element of it's also a really personal thing right so Mm. if you're kind of a lot of the time when I use kind of all history sources and things like that, when people have been interviewed and asked about things, um, when people talk about board games, they generally talk about people. You know, they'll say, oh, I played this game and I played it with so-and-so and, and, you know, we really enjoyed it or I played it with my brother when, you know, my dad wasn't there. You know, there's all these kind of, it's all about these personal uh, relationships. (laughs) And actually, if you kind of, if you're asking people these things, it can get quite personal quite quickly. And it can, and that's one thing I try and talk about in my research is the idea that play isn't always good. Play isn't always this enjoyable experience. Um, and that can make it quite, especially when it comes to these familial relationships. So I was kind of looking at how we can understand family dynamics through people talking about play and board yeah. games and things like that. Yeah. And all of a sudden it can become quite a difficult thing to talk about and it becomes incredibly personal. And, and so, yeah. And so there's an element of, well, a lot of people won't want to talk about that or a lot of people won't want to remember these negative experiences. And so potentially we end up with these really rose-tinted views of, oh, you know, everyone, you know, people might remember, oh, we argued that time when we played that game and bits like things like that. But generally people would be like, oh, you know, we used to play this and we had a great time and so-and-so, but no one's going to remember, oh, I remember, you know, well, some people remember this, people be like, oh, I remember when my little brother cheated all the time and it was really annoying and, you know, I really hated it at the time and yeah. things like that. And so it's important to remember these things, but it's also, it can be, it can be quite a lot to ask people to remember them at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it is one of the reasons why, I mean, people of well what you know if i'm asking people about how they got into the hobby you'll be amazed they go oh well, i started off monopoly but usually the first the next phrase that they come out with the next sentence they come out with is who they were playing that game with mm-hmm. and then that can take them on a kind of a bit of an emotional journey which i'm i'm more sometimes interested as an interviewer 
finding out the emotional impact of something over just the factual, the facts about mm. something. You know, if somebody says, well, I played Monopoly, okay, but I also played Lost Valley, the dinosaurs, and played with my brother. All right, do you remember the dinosaurs had huge amounts of lipstick on them? Yes, I did, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we used to do this, blah, blah, blah. And it takes it and it kind of opens them up on the emotional side of things, which I'm more interested in. The whole reason I do this is because I'm interested in people and if I can find to have an emotional discussion with them about something, it kind of it can peel back more about their how they approach something than them just talking about the design ethos yeah. that they follow or the structure that they follow or the idea or how they structure their day or something like that, which is always which is always kinda of, kinda of cool. Um have you ever kind of from a design I know you obviously you do you obviously you write and you write stuff for the garden. You've done um you've done actually talks and presentations in relation to um board game history as well. Um mm. have you ever thought about kind of going into kind of like the design side of things or, you know, reproducing some of the older games and saying, well here, you know, bring let me do an updated version of this game just to show people how the mechanics would have worked and things like that. Mm. No, I've definitely thought about it. I mean, I'm not a designer. I've no. never designed anything, so I could <laughs> I would I have got these ideas in my head. I would probably be terrible at it in practice. But I think there's definitely so one of the things I think uh, games can be really great for is showing historical research. Yeah. Uh, particularly if you're looking at things like processes, like economic, political, you know, all these processes I think work a lot better in a non-linear interactive fashion than they do in a big block of text because a big block of text is just impenetrable to so many people. Um, yeah. But games are a really good way of getting some stuff across. And I spend, a, I, you know, I think about it quite a lot when I'm, kind of looking at my research and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm researching play and I'm researching players. And is there a way I can get my research across in a playful manner that makes, you know, so the content suits, you know, what, you know, the kind of delivery suits the content kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's definitely, I would love to work with, um, uh, more, you know, I've, 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 I've spoken with a few historians who are interested in using board games as a way to kind of show their research. And it's, it's definitely something I'd love to see more of. It's, it's actually becoming more, I, over the last couple of years, I've, I've seen it quite a bit and it, that's really exciting to me. Um, and so yeah, no, I'd love to get involved more with stuff like that. I think there's such a huge potential. Um, and there's just all these amazing untapped kind of research avenues. And I think that people would be interested in, but are quite intimidating on their own. And a game is a really good way of getting this stuff across. I also think it's a really good way for historians to kind of, even if they just, you know, even if they don't use a game as their, you know, their dissertation or as, as a replacement for a paper, it's yeah. still a really good kind of thought experiment, I think, because you have to think about your research in an entirely different way. Yeah. And you have to kind of restructure it in your head. And, and so I think it's actually a really I'd love to see more historians kind of um, approaching their research from a more playful manner, not playful in the sense of kind of, oh, you know, going to no. be lighthearted and fun, but in the sense of kind of structuring things and, you know, creating a narrative and creating a flow and mechanics and all these things. I think, I think there's a lot of value in that. Yeah. I've, there seems to be more and more in terms of the commercial aspect of it, there seems to be a little bit more of kind of gamification of kind of like training and stuff like that and using kind of almost elements from board games in order to teach people in kind of like in a business environment. And I even, mm. there was a Kickstarter recently, which was um, a playtesting journal, which was... Um, you could play essentially, you know, as you were going through your game testing, it would turn it almost into a game itself to kind of make the entire process kind of, I guess, fun, but also mm. less strenuous as well. So yeah. people could take part in play testing and not feel that they were kind of, yes, they're giving all the figures and the information and the facts and stuff like that, but kind of almost making it easy because it was just something that became like a natural kind of like a natural kind of flow for them mm. um do you think that in terms of the way that board games are going that um and i've seen this in the video game space that we sh we need kind of more critical writing in the board mm. gaming space you know that there seem we seem to be kind of at the the beginning of where we are in terms of you know we're 
it's very popular. You know, it's worth, mm. you know, hundreds of millions of dollars now, the board game industry. There's thousands of games coming out just you. But a lot of the kind of the, the journalism on it still seems to be very kind of, let's do some coverage on a game and not kind of mm. maybe take the next step yet. Yeah, I think kind of getting, you know, adding to towards, you know, so journalism isn't just kind of news and reviews, it's these kind of features and think pieces and critical analysis and things like that is really important. I think um I think there's there's lots of great stuff happening in kind of a uh, game studies and this kind of a uh, the theoretical side. Um I'm pretty mm-hmm. firmly based in history, but kind of taking, yeah. you know, poaching bits from game studies, but it's fantastic seeing what people are doing. Um so I think that's important, but I think also yeah, I think kind of bringing it to to the journalism side is very important, especially you know kind of reading stuff about kind of so like colonial aspects of games and yes. kind of rethinking well why are we you know all this stuff is about dominance and what does that tell us about you know the way we play and why we play and you know what you know we can't just blindly use these themes anymore we really have to think about why we're using them why they're used so much. And kind of analyze that a bit more. And I think that's really important because I think if, yeah, especially when it comes to things like colonialism, you really have to, you have to think a bit and you have to dig deep. And, you know, and as a game designer, you can't just kind of, you don't just get to take these themes and these tropes and just kind of use them because they're there. You really have to take responsibility for the stuff you're creating and the themes that you use. And, you know, you have to really think about, well, why am I using this? You Mm. know, and I think, I think that's a really important side of it. Is there anybody that you kind of um, that you regularly go to to kind of read about or listen to or anything like that? Is there any kind of like podcasts or media that you kind of go to in order to kind of you know to, that's helped you with your kind of your studies? You know, if if anybody's going to listen along tonight um, and they said, "Oh, I'd like to, I'd like to take a couple of steps down that down that alley and mm. into that street," um, how do you know how do I start my little journey down there? So there's a podcast called, oh God, this is where I'm going to get it wrong. It's a Game Study Buddies, I think. Um, and yeah, so I've listened to a few of them and they're, they kind of take these kind of, um, yeah, Game Studies, uh, Study Buddies, sorry, there's an extra study in there. Um, but yeah, they kind of do an episode and they're quite long episodes, but they basically, it's two guys and they're both academics and they take these kind of big key texts in the area of game studies mm-hmm. and they just talk about them. They kind of go through them. They discuss them, uh, you know, for a bit. And it's very approachable. It's uh, very interesting, um, especially, you know, these kind of big texts can be quite intimidating, especially also it can cost a lot of money to even get access to this reading material. These books can be quite expensive. Yeah. Or if you don't have uh, institutional access to libraries, things like that, it mm. can be really difficult. Um, so I think I uh, I think that's really great. Uh, it's a really good podcast. Um, a lot of the time, I'm kind of I'm very lucky in that I know uh, a few people who work in the area, and I often process a lot of stuff just by talking through it with my friends. Really, yeah. Um, I've got friends, you know, who are doing kind of more straight history PhDs, people who are more in game studies, people who are in kind of cultural analysis, and just kind of talking to people from these different uh, backgrounds. I think. One of the main, I think one of the, the, the main things is to be really interdisciplinary. And I think that's, it's a buzzword and it's kind of thrown around a lot now, especially in academic spaces, yeah. you know, everything is interdisciplinary, but actually, especially for something like board games, you really have to be because there's not a literature in how we talk about players uh, in, in like my own area in history. And so you have to kind of branch out into psychology and sociology mm-hmm. and then kind of, you know, game, you know, these kind of theories around games, uh, to make sense of it. And so I think, um, you know, no matter what your background is, or even if, you know, you're not necessarily an academic, there's a lot of different ways you can approach it and you can like read, read, you know, kind of select a little bits and listen to stuff. And you kind of think, Oh, that's interesting. And just kind of follow that through. And you'll think, okay, well, actually I quite like this psychological angle and, you know, maybe I'll think of it in terms of that. And I think just kind of really broadening uh, the places that you draw information from is just, it's always great, especially when looking at games and play. And the other thing that you also do as well as you do, can you, you you do freelance work? You do a fair bit of kind of writing um, on occasion as well. Um, mm. 
are you is it mostly kind of video game stuff that you're doing are you doing kind of other stuff as well because i know that you've you write for the kind of is it the guardian you do kind yeah, of regular stuff so, for? so yeah it's interesting so it's mostly been video game stuff but i've noticed the more i do my research the more i'm kind of noticing these kind of longer themes and so kind of one of the things I've been really lucky enough to do, um, because I've had a you know a few editors who have been really great and supportive, um, is kind of taking my historical research and applying it to these kind of modern issues. So I talk a lot about political games and the idea of games being political, and I you know I use my research when I talk about that and show that um, one of the ways that I kind of talk about you know this idea of kind of a uh, publishers saying, oh no, this game isn't political, even though it's yeah. using all these clearly political themes, uh, kind of pointing out how ridiculous this is, because as someone who spends all the time looking at games and archives, uh-huh. uh, the, the idea of coming across a game that clearly has all these themes and thinking, oh, well, I can't look at it in that way because the publisher said so. Is just so ludicrous, and the publisher even saying that in the first place is a massive political statement. Yeah. And they're actually putting everything in this context. Like it just, it just obviously shows how silly it is. Like it's very silly, and um, yeah. So there's kind of all these kind of longer themes that I'm starting to notice that hopefully I'm going to get a bit more chance to write about. So you're going to try and branch. I mean, if you were given the chance to kind of write more historical stuff, if the Guardian says, "Oh, just do an article on it." you know, have a regular thing, talk about the kind of the the past with it, you know, would that be something you would be, you'd love to do, I guess? Are you not allowed to do yeah. it if you're doing a PhD? Are you still allowed, <laughs> would you be allowed to do that? Uh, so I would be. Um, you have to be careful uh, in how much of your research you put out there if you don't have it published in an academic journal or yeah. in a book or something like that, because basically if you're talking about your research and you don't have this bit of academic publishing already saying it, you've basically put out your research for free and people can, you know, take it, they can take bits of it and they don't have to reference you because they have no academic reference to go to. So you have to be a bit careful in how much mm. you put out there, which is frustrating because um, I've, I've, I've kind of had to say no to quite a few uh, editors because yeah. I'm like, I'm really sorry, but I can't, I can't write about this right now because it's in my dissertation or it's part of my research and I can't put it out there until it's published. Um, So that's really, it's really frustrating, especially kind of coming from the world of journalism, um, especially like games journalism, where it's such a quick turnaround. You know, you write a piece and within a couple of days, it's either online or it's going to the printers or it's such a quick turnaround. And then going into academia, where it's the world's slowest, (laughs) just like, you know, you'll write, you'll write something and then maybe four years later, you might get a yes or a no as to whether they might publish it. And then there's like another year of peer review, maybe two and then just kind of these just you know so you can write something and then like six years later it'll like get published and so it's very frustrating going from two very different worlds in terms of publishing um i was gonna say it was was interesting uh hearing you um one of the interviews that you had kind of talking about scaling notre dame cathedral playing kind of like Mm. assassin's creed and i was kind of like oh (laughs) but then (laughs) on the back of that i believe that they were using some of the scans that they took mm. to develop the game in order to potentially help with the rebuilding of the cathedral. So that's kind of, that's a bit weird. <laughs> also quick. <laughs> yeah. There's like, yeah, there's so much interesting stuff going on. I think especially um, games are a bit odd because a lot of games haven't grown up kind of needing this academic validation that a lot of mediums kind of seek. Um, and so the kind of dialogue between uh, academic institutions and kind of publishers or developers, mm-hmm. it's often either not there or they kind of speak very different languages. Or when consultants are brought on, they're brought on really late and they're brought on to basically be like, oh, well, what color would that be rather than part yeah, of the creative process? Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's definitely a growing, like, especially between like Ubisoft has put in a lot of effort uh into kind of harboring these really good relationships with institutions and doing all this extra stuff um which i think you know there's obviously like there's marketing reasons for why you would do that you know there's there's lots of reasons why you do that but i think it is important and i think i don't know i think i think it's great to have a bit more of this dialogue uh going on i think i don't know that's just it's just very encouraging as Mm -hmm. someone who writes about video games and someone who studies history seeing 
any of this kind of dialogue going on is 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 interesting. Yeah, I'm interested to see where it goes. Yeah, not just making it up as they go along, but actually saying let's look at the kind of the historical context of this and let's actually look at if what we're presenting potentially to let's face it, hundreds of thousands of people who have maybe no idea how that um, how that kind of place in history actually worked. That could be their mm-hmm. first exposure to say the French Revolution or you know yeah. or ancient greece or you know and that kind yeah. of thing so so it's kind of important to kind of get that you know that if you're giving if you're doing it as part of a narrative as part of a story or actually saying this is how things could have played out that you try and make things kind of as as factually correct or as as, as much as you can basically yeah i think just kind of um just having a dialogue with historians is helpful because I'm a big believer in that historical accuracy is not necessary. And mm-hmm. I, I really hate the term historical accuracy because it just brings up a lot of stuff. Well, you're accurate to which histories and, you know, and, and yeah. where do you draw the line in accuracy? And there's all that complicated stuff. But I think having a dialogue with uh, experts and people who research stuff is, is just, and also kind of research is itself a creative process. And so I think kind of bringing bringing research into that creative process. I think, I think you can tell when a game has really done its homework and when it's, and when it's kind of had this kind of research going from the very beginning, rather than just yeah. kind of like ticking off boxes at the end, you can really tell. And I think it's a, it's very yeah, important. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. It's good. Um, if people have listened along tonight and they want to, get, I guess, kind of gaze on your works as a historical expert. Where do you exist on the interweb <laughs> nets? Where can we find you, Ollie? Um, I mean, it's mainly Twitter, probably, which is because now I'm just thinking, like, oh, God, what rubbish have I tweeted recently? <laughs> and I'm telling it's, people I'm to just, go have a look. Exactly. They'll be going um, expecting, oh, right, let's look, at, um, let's look at this. And it's like, oh, 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 okay. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's not exactly what's but okay. So yeah, so it's mainly Twitter at the moment, um, mm. because unfortunately I can't share a lot of. My, yeah. I mean, I, I I talk about my research a bit on Twitter, but um, uh, but there will be a cha- I have a chapter coming out in a book called Homo Ludens, published by Routledge, and oh, it should cool. be coming out this year, but it's a uh, academic publishing, so who knows? Uh, but it <laughs> should be this year anyway, and that's on a. I'm trying to, it's, it's quite a long-winded title, my chapter. It's, I think it's like, a, um, the nursery, uh, the British Empire will be built from nursery floors, depictions of travel and space in 19th century British board games. I think I've got that right. Oh, there you go. It's basically looking at, uh, geographical games from the 19th century and looking at ones that talk about empire and ones that talk about, uh, Europe and the kind of differences and similarities between the two. Excellent. Yeah. So hopefully, uh, keep an eye out. <laughs> Excellent. Um, thank you very, very much for coming on. This has been oh. fascinating. You know. <laughs> well, thank you for asking me. I Excellent. hope. I hope. Uh, I hope it's been enjoyable. Well, it has. It has. Um, if people want to keep an eye on what we're up to, go to the internet web. Search for We Are Not Wizards. You'll find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and we've got a website which is wearenotwizards.com. We've got a blog which is we'renotwizards.blogspot.com. Um, you can email us, which is magic at we'renotwizards. I am aware of the irony of the email address. Um, that's why I chose it. <laughs> um, if you like what you've listened to tonight, there's a couple of things you can do. Tell somebody else, basically. Or the other thing you can do is you can go on to these podcast catchers, which have either got the name pod or cast, except if you're Spotify, and um, drop us a little rating or a review. If you like us an awful lot, go to Apple Podcasts and drop us a rating or a review or a subscription there. And as we always say, um, if you are going to be giving us a rating or a review, don't give us 10 stars because it makes us big-headed. But don't give us one star because it makes us cry. Give us something in the middle, like a five, because it's <laughs> um, because it's in the middle, it's average, and we're just a, a little bit average. But the person who's not been average... They're rather wonderful, rather fantastic, Holly Nielsen. Thank you very, very much. (laughs) Um, There's only two more things to do. The first thing is to remember that we're many things, but we're not wizards. Are we wizards, Holly? Uh, No. Absolutely not. (laughs) Not a chance.
you know, <laughs> let's finish on a high. And the second thing is to say goodbye. So it's a goodbye from Holly. Say goodbye, Holly. Uh, goodbye. And it's a goodbye from me. Remember, stay safe, roll sixes, make something awful. And um, yeah, you think, you know, board games go back for ages, for a long, long time, you know. And it's not just about Catan and Monopoly. It's, you know, it's Ugg and Tharg chucking rocks at each other over a little kind of stone tablet board type thing stuff. But until the next time, goodbye. A wizard is never late. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to.